Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. At the end of last year, I asked the Decoder producers to come up with better ways for us to cover crypto and Web3. I don't think it's any secret that I'm fairly skeptical of crypto, but I want to make sure I come by that skepticism honestly. And on the flip side, I want to make sure that I see the opportunities and benefits clearly. We've already done episodes of Decoder on Bitcoin and DAOs, that's DAO or Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, and we're going to do more episodes as the year goes on. There is an awful lot of money and talent flowing into crypto, and I think it's important that we talk to the people building what they claim will be the next version of the internet, and maybe the next version of money, of culture society. There are an awful lot of claims out there, and I think it's important to push on them and see what's real and what's not. To start, a lot of Web3 seems like it runs into the existing legal system in complicated and sometimes very funny ways. For example, the NFT world has what I will politely call an impressionistic understanding of copyright law. And DAOs, well, they aren't actually recognized as legal entities in most states. So in a very technical sense, they can't actually do anything in the real world. But NFTs exist and DAOs exist. People are flocking to them. And at some point, the law will have to catch up. So today I'm talking to Tanya Evans. She's a law professor at Penn State Dickinson Law. She teaches IP law, entertainment law, business law, and blockchain. She also hosts the Tech Intersect podcast, where she covers how law and technology intersect. She has spent a lot of time thinking about crypto assets and how they interact with the law. Tanya's point of view is that we shouldn't just abandon many of the legal frameworks we have today. She thinks they need to adapt to this new internet. For example, late in the episode, we talk about how there's nothing forcing the members of a DAO to do something beyond regular old contract law. The DAO votes on something, the principals have to take the action, but what's going to make them take the action? And her reply was, well, what's wrong with regular old contract law? The tech industry, and especially people on the internet, tend to discount answers like that. But it's also true that sometimes the simplest answers are the best. And for all the new ground people are trying to break with Web3, I kind of appreciated that Tanya's solution was simple. Just write a contract. Now, a few notes, since the law student and me can never help trying to impress law professors when we have them on the show. Tanya and I make reference to the four corners of an agreement. That's lawyer slang for what a contract specifically covers. We talk a lot about partnership law, which is how different kinds of companies are formed and treated under the law. A general partnership is the default. That means everyone in the company is an equal partner and importantly liable for everything the company does, including its debts. An LLC or limited liability company is exactly what it sounds like. It's a company that protects the principles from being liable for everything the company does. Right now, most states don't recognize DAOs as any kind of company, which means they'll just be treated as general partnerships, and everyone in the DAO would be liable for everything the DAO does. I don't think most people expect that, but it's a surprisingly complicated situation with no easy answer. Of course, we also talked a lot about copyright law. 
The current copyright law in the United States was passed in 1976 with some updates in 1998 as part of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. You've probably heard that phrase. You'll hear us say copyright maximalist, which is the idea that copyright should cover lots of things and the copyright holders should have a lot of power over how their work is used. You'll also hear us say copy left, which is the idea that people should be able to use and modify works more freely for the public good. I know this sounds like a lot, but trust me, this is a really fun one. All right, Tanya Evans, professor at Penn State Dickinson Law. Here we go. Professor Tanya Evans, you are a law professor at Penn State Dickinson Law, where you teach entertainment law, IP law, and blockchain, which is a rich intersection for our show. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. We have a lot to talk about. Like I said, that is a very rich intersection. There's a lot going on, a lot to understand, but I want to start with you. You are a lawyer, you're a professor, you have a long background teaching about IP law, entertainment law. How did you end up teaching cryptocurrency and NFTs? It was interesting. Back in 2017 is when I fell down the proverbial rabbit hole to try and figure out what the heck blockchain is and certainly how it related to crypto assets. More broadly, folks focus on the idea of cryptocurrencies, but actually I use the broader term of crypto assets. I was not at all convinced about magic leprechaun money that lived somewhere in the (laughs) internet. And I'm licensed in four states, and if it had anything to do with illegal activity, I wanted nothing to do with it because I'm going to hold on to my my four licenses. (laughs) But what I did realize, because personally, I am always an early adopter of technology, even though I don't have a scientific background or a technical background per se, I thought it was important for me to at least figure out what it all is and what it means and what it means for the next wave of lawyers that has to really show up for business and technologists who are really creating the future today. So I started by focusing more on distributed ledger technology. It's a fancy way of describing blockchains and also working at the intersection of intellectual property generally, but copyright in particular and blockchain. There was a lot of open source projects and the fact that you have these public facing digital records of transactions and balances. That was really interesting to me. And also I was starting to get some calls about folks who wanted to build on top of the layer one infrastructure of blockchains. They wanted to monetize it. And so I wanted to be conversant and understand the technology so I could best advise people, mostly entrepreneurs and startups in the space, but also to educate again, the next wave of lawyers to really understand the intellectual property issues that were going to pop up in what we now commonly refer to as Web3. That's 2017. It's now 2022. I would say your predictions were correct. Absolutely. There are many (laughs) issues at play. One of the things I definitely want to talk to you about is it doesn't seem like the legal frameworks have caught up to us making some of these issues even more complicated. Mm. But that's the legal side. On the cultural side, Right. The, the phrase Web3 exists now. Like Everyone's talking about right. it. We, you and I are talking the just a few days after the Super Bowl, which was crypto <laughs> ad city. Right. Do you think that for, from your perspective now, having tracked it for five years or so, is it mainstream? Is this the time when it's, it's turning the corner and everyone has to understand it? Or is it still entrepreneurs, tech journalists, lawyers who are building the framework so it can get mainstream? These are the early days. The first uh, blockchain is the Bitcoin blockchain that uh, first launched in, in 2009. And so we are turning the corner, but it's still relatively early. But there are more folks than just technologists or cypherpunks or those who are either on the fringe of tech or the fringe of finance. We have more mainstream folks. That's the reason that millions of dollars were spent for Crypto Bowl, also known as the crypto ads during Super Bowl, <laughs> and some really epic ones from Coinbase and FTX and um, Crypto.com. I am not uh, paid by any of them. I would like to be, but not paid by any of them to say that. <laughs> but it was very interesting to see, right, that all of these things, please call me, please call me, I'm on Twitter. Uh, But yeah, that's when you really know when it really hits the common ethos, when ad money is being spent 
to attract more folks, not on the margins, you know, because crypto really is still a very small segment of the larger financial markets. It's the reason that even though the big banks and traditional finance, they've known about this technology for a long time, they were not forced to actually pay attention until now, because now it's a customer service issue and they want to make sure that they maintain their market share, maintain their control over their customers, and make sure that if there's some new hot product that they want to be the one bridging the divide between folks who don't know about crypto and tech to actually stay with their financial products. Those are financial products. One of the things that strikes me about all tech companies is that the way you disrupt the incumbent is you ignore the regulatory environment that costs the incumbent money. Mm -hmm. The example that always comes to mind for me is actually YouTube, right? Which developed a dominant share of video streaming in the early days, by more or less just ignoring the existence of copyright law, Mm. right? So you're I'll pick on Viacom because this is the case. Viacom or whoever could not have built a YouTube because they were the incumbent. They had lots of deals. They would have never been able to get the content onto any site they had built because their lawyers would have stopped them. YouTube was like, we don't have lawyers. We're just a bunch (laughs) of guys. Right. Lawyer schmoyer. Right. Right. And then the, the cost of compliance in a lawsuit against Viacom was worth it for the overwhelming profits they now generate for existing in the space. If you look at that, that is just a paradigmatic story of how internet companies get built. Mm. Do you think that's what the crypto companies are doing now in relation to the banks? They're just ignoring their regulatory environments and saying, we'll pay the price down the line, but it's worth it to get to where we need to go. It's interesting because when I think about crypto life before companies, It really wasn't about companies. Mm -hmm. The whole point of it is decentralization and not having a centralized structure, a more formal structure to actually deliver quote unquote products. It's antithetical really to the origins and the original ethos and spirit of crypto, where it's like, we may not know each other or trust each other. We don't trust government. We don't trust big business. We're going to trust the code. Yeah. Right. And we're going to share this common code across all of these different computers, and then it will be impervious to tech, and it will be working outside of the traditional system. And that's the way some parts of the World Wide Web and the internet and kind of Web 1, Web 2, we're building as well. As you're talking about, you know, the impact of regulation and maybe the quote-unquote absence, the perception of the absence of a regulatory environment, I don't actually buy into that totally. I know that if I have a a crypto wallet and you have a crypto wallet, we can, on a peer-to-peer basis, exchange value in the same way we did uh, with MP3 files. Not me, because I'm not a P lawyer. I didn't (laughs) believe in sharing. See, I was a bad copyright lawyer because I (laughs) I represented the kids who got sued for using Kazaa. And then I was like, this is very depressing. I need to do something else with my life. <laughs> Aha. Yeah, right. I read all these great cases and we think of like the Napster and the Groxers because now I know. Now I know. Um, but your point is well made. And I attribute it more to startups and entrepreneurial endeavors where you move fast, you break shit, and then you figure it out after that. And the cost of doing business and the overhead it certainly is not just for traditional corporate structures, but more likely for entrepreneurs and the speed at which technology moves. It's moving at this meteoric pace now. I liken it almost to birth pangs. We're like getting closer and closer and closer to something really epic and really big. It's moving so fast. And so we don't really have time to sit around for two or three or 10 years for uh, maybe Congress to pass legislation or judges to render decisions. And that's just the speed of technology. And this is no exception because this is a technological innovation that is impacting and disrupting financial markets, as well as virtually every other sector in some form or fashion. Blockchain and or crypto assets are having an impact, and it's just moving really fast. Let's bracket the financial regulation side of it for a minute, because I think you make a good distinction between cryptocurrencies and crypto assets, right? Mm. There's... Bitcoin and Ethereum and other stores of monetary value, and they need to be regulated like money. But when you say crypto assets, you're talking about inclusive of NFTs, inclusive of other crypto products, inclusive of DAOs. Those to me are in an even wilder West, Mm. right? You threaten the big banks, you threaten the United States federal, like 
<laughs> the action's happening, right? Like it's the train's on its way. You threaten the sort of normative copyright system that we have in this country. Maybe nothing happens for a long time until you <laughs> piss off Disney, right? Like mm. there's no action there. And that to me, it seems like where I see NFTs and DAOs just stumble over and over again mm. is when they come into contact with the existing regulatory structures. When an NFT product comes into contact with copyright law, something bad happens. Mm -hmm. When a DAO comes into contact with general partnership law, mm -hmm. something bad happens. Why do you think there's a gap between where the entrepreneurs are and their ability to sort of get over that hump and recognize like this is this is a brick wall we're headed towards. Right. We need to innovate around it or get through it. Because over and over again, I see NFTs run into copyright law or DAOs run into partnership law. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we didn't do a good enough job. And by we, it's, it's uh, I'll think of big business and also all of the IP issues, generally copyright issues in particular, and you know them very well in the Web2 world where, you know, late 90s and peer-to-peer -peer technologies bringing all the <laughs> all the copyright infringement to the yard. And uh, <laughs> it was a lot of the, you know, the nomenclature around sharing. It was also all of um, the, I think, ridiculous suits coming from the music industry in particular. And other Those are the ones that, I defended against. Exactly. So I actually- I, I, I thought I, they were pretty ridiculous. It's unbelievable. We'll sue you for <laughs> if you're 13 or 92 and everybody in between, which is really terrible for the music industry. And- that's a classic example of winning, I guess, the battle and certainly losing the war. And you saw other sectors within the industry kind of sitting on the sidelines to figure out. And you know, even if technically I am correct on the issues of law, it might be terrible for business for me to go and pursue it. You have other concerns, maybe perhaps as a matter of trademark, where you have an affirmative duty to police your mark. You don't really have that affirmative duty on the copyright side. And there's a lot of... Um, acceptable levels of infringement for the purpose of engaging with consumers. And so we saw a lot of that play itself out in Web 2. Uh, but also the stage was set for the average person's understanding and relationship to copyrighted information. The whole lack of understanding between what it means to have fair use or public domain works when they are terms of art. You and I know they're terms of art, they have a specific mm -hmm. definition, but some people will think if it's on the internet, it must be free. Or if I can right click and save it, then I can use it. The advent of social media allows us to copy things, share things. When you think of the 106 rights of being able to reproduce, me to copy, to distribute, to prepare, you know, prepare adaptations, all of these adaptive works or what we would call de derivative works or the ability to publicly display or perform, all of that is commonly done with social media. So the connection to ownership versus the ability to license and use, I think is just not understood by most people. And then transfer that into the non-fungible token space where the token isn't the creativity, but it's connected to the creativity. It's right. like this idea of, of some digital representation of some right or connection to something else. And the way that we talk about it commonly now is something creative or something collectible. And so we're just running up against it again with new technology and it presents some of the old questions that weren't adequately resolved there. And we just have it with another iteration of technology. So one of our main ideas at The Verge, and I, I mean this across our site, and it comes from our features editor, Sarah Jong, but one of our main ideas at The Verge is that the only functional law on the internet as we know it today is copyright law. Mm. Like the, it's the only legal regime that everyone recognizes exists and then can actually lead to results, right? You want YouTube or Facebook or Twitter to take something down. If you come at it in any direction other than copyright law, your chances of success are not assured. If you come at it through copyright law, there, you can just go to open the DMCA portal mm -hmm. and request a takedown, and YouTube will probably do it. Right. Right. That law has a real power on the internet in a way that almost everything else does not. And so almost everything kind of gets filtered through the lens of copyright, whether or not it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of see that we, we see that pattern play out over and over again. I think we see it play out with consumers. I think the average consumer is more aware of YouTube's DMCA policies 
or TikTok's music rights policies than they're aware of like their local traffic laws. <laughs> right. Cause they just encounter it over. Mm-hmm. They encounter the application of, uh, of a regulatory system in their lives over and over and over again. Well, you know, we, it took a long time to get there. Yeah. Because obviously these platforms didn't want to do it because they felt it was bad for business and they don't want to be the copyright police. You know, we went through all of that with the six strikes or three strikes. and But the advertising around DMCA, people may not even know what it stands for, but they know that acronym for sure. Because a lot of people were getting DMCA takedowns <laughs> for all of the stuff they were sharing. That coupled with the facts that people aren't reading terms and conditions. So it's the ads and consequences That connection makes it very, very real for people in ways that pure contract law or other types of uh, regulatory uh, or legal regimes, they don't come into contact. And by coming into contact, literally it's consequences. Yep. They can have all the advertising in the world. No one literally cares unless there are consequences. And there were significant consequences for the platforms. They wanted to take advantage of Safe Harbor. And so they were pushing that down to the consumer so that it weren't, wasn't just an awareness of it. And they tried kind of the nice way, but then you're going to get a notice. And after a few notices, you're not going to be able to access not only our product or our platform, but the interweb. And that will get people's <laughs> attention for sure. And that was before, obviously, the pandemonium and, and the, uh, the essential nature of having access to broadband technology. So that's the DMCA, which, by the way, you're correct. We didn't even say what it stands for. Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So everyone who listens now, you will get the A for the day. If you actually take nothing away from this interview, please know what DMCA stands for. Uh, But put that next to NFTs, right? Mm. It's everyone knows about copyright law. Absolutely. You can make a strong case that it is the only operative law on the Internet as most people experience it. Mm. And then in the NFTs, it's just like the Wild West, right? People are copying one another's NFTs. There's copy minting where an NFT project takes off and somebody immediately just takes all the files and recopies them. There's the generalized sort of willful ignorance of copyright law existing from some (laughs) NFT projects to begin with Mm -hmm. where they are just using other people's trademarks and works to make NFTs. And then they get lawyers and they complain that they're being censored. Right. This is like a real thing that it's nuts to me, but it's a real thing that happens. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that there is that willful ignorance of the underlying copyright law that to some extent makes makes NFTs valuable? Mm. Right. I mean, that's the idea is that you have a scarce work that you can restrict the right to copy. Yeah, it's a ton of speculation and it's pure greed and money. Because when you think of art for art's sake, there is a decided portion of the NFT space that is focused on the culture, focused on not just art, but also the value that comes from just owning something of value that you want to collect, not flip like it's another token. We have a lot of speculators in the fungible token space, just meaning the Bitcoins and the Ethereums of the world. Fungibility, long story short, just means interchangeable. So if you use the example of a dollar or a Bitcoin or an ETH, it doesn't matter which one. We'll use physical cash because it's easier to make the analogy. It doesn't matter which dollar, even though they all have serial numbers on them because they have the same value. With a non-fungible token, they're unique and have the potential to have extraordinary value. We've seen some that go for $69 million, and everybody's swinging for the fences for that one. And it's so easy to do. Think of the, the state of the art. The state of the technology at this point makes it incredibly easy. Ever since the late 90s, with digital technology, peer-to-peer technology, the internet, to make these near-perfect or perfect digital copies and sell them very quickly as well on the open seas of the world. Yes, I said it. So there are, you know, several different types of minting platforms and sales platform environments, and each has its own approach to what is going to be offered for sale on their platform. And so I think that we're going to quickly start to see, we, we have uh, DMCA takedowns going on, but it takes a long time to do. And by that time, it's already sold. It may have sold 
you know, this NFT that's connected to infringed upon art has sold a lot of different times. We have the problem of not readily being able to identify folks, although it's, you know, crypto and having a public wallet is pseudonymous. It's not anonymous in the great majority of cases. So that's a bit of a misunderstanding. But it's, it happens quickly. People flip it. People grab the money and run. And it's a little more difficult, at least on the front end, to be able to hunt it down. And so I find that to be the bigger issue, or at least the issue you mentioned earlier with Web2. That's just, again, it's like, um, you know, on gas now. It's just going at a much faster burn rate. And the consequences are big because of the money, at least the potential for money that that's involved. And so those platforms are going to have to tighten up their game or what I also see. And this has happened kind of in a web 2.0 space. Photographers got together and filed a class action suit last year. I don't have the name of the case in front of me, but there are a lot of famous photographers who were concerned about the access that folks have to be able to reshare their, I think it's called like framing on a website and they could pull from Instagram the actual post and then frame it within the context of an article, mostly happening in the entertainment world. And photographers said, I wanted it shared on social media, but not on your site. And they all got together to say that it was a pattern and a practice of infringement that was not sufficiently guarding against the type of rampant infringement that not just one or two or three, but almost every photographer was um, susceptible to. I think that type of class action suit could be really effective against these minting platforms. There's not one that we could speak about today, but there are enough concerns of around OpenSea and, and too much being accessible without reproach. And so we, I, we might see cases like that come up in the not too distant future. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to finish talking about this lawsuit and segue into the controversy over the rights to TikTok and Fortnite dances. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back and we're picking up right where we left off. So that Instagram case is really fascinating, right? We covered it. It's a bunch of photographers, class action suit against Instagram. And they said, you're allowing people to embed our Instagram posts and they're taking value from them. Right. I think most internet users are like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, it's an Instagram. Of course, anybody can embed it. This whole point of the post is to share it. Mm. And so they're now filing a lawsuit to change a, not just a norm on the internet, but to create a precedent. And the only logical outcome, right, is that Instagram has to add a control that says this post is not embeddable. Right. Or if you want to embed this post, I don't know, you got you to pay us and we'll... Just channel that payment toward the photo- I don't know. Right. Good luck with that one. <laughs> right. But like suing somebody to get them to do something, at least when I was in law school, I, I was told that's not, you can get money, but you can never get somebody to do something. No court is ever going to order somebody. That's like the hardest thing to do. Right. 
and suing Facebook to get them to add software to their software seems really hard. Right. But then you take one step back and like, oh, these photographers, their work is getting used for free. Mm-hmm. How do you solve that problem? I don't know how to solve that problem in the case of Instagram. Mm. Do you think there's any Web3 or blockchain products that solve that problem? Because that's the promise that I always hear, right? By turning everything into money, mm. <laughs> the, the money will flow more freely, especially to creators. Or value. Let's sure. keep it at value. And actually, the NFT space is a great example of things that were sitting on the proverbial IP shelf collecting dust that the NBA top shots of the world are like, hey, I think we could monetize that in the NFT space and the giving it a second life. So creating value and value streams are, are important. I don't agree that there's nothing that can be done because the state of the art, getting back to technology, do those technological capabilities exist? Mm-hmm. The short answer is yes. At what cost to the platform? right? Because that's added cost of doing business. They certainly don't want to. But I also think from, let's analogize that to the privacy space, where the same companies that said, we can't use our technological capabilities to protect you against these various interactions with privacy uh, threats and the like. But then you go over to European nations and the same companies are asking you, well, you know, do you want our cookies? If you don't, that's fine. You can turn them off. There's a whole different experience when you use a VPN or you're in European nations with privacy than in the United States. That means that technological capabilities exist. And when companies are forced to do something in order to operate in a particular geofenced area, they will do it. And I bring that all the way back to what we're talking about in the NFT space and copyright. If they're required to do it in order to do business, they will do it. If they're not, they won't. And so that's why we see a lot of companies spending a lot of time on the Hill lobbying to ensure that there is as little that they are required to do as possible. Because once they're required to do it, it's kind of a a slippery slope from a regulatory point of view. But again, I think we see that with privacy law. I think we see that with antitrust law, certainly with app market law. Are you seeing it in copyright law? Because that's like the thing that's slowest to move, but it's also the thing that affects everybody the most. That disconnect to me has always just seemed fascinating, right? Like here you're trying to get a bunch of internet users to change how they believe the internet works, which mm. maybe you will never do. You have a bunch of creators who are saying, hey, I get ripped off all the time. And you have platforms in the middle saying, yeah, we're getting rich, though. Like, more money than ever is happening on, on Instagram and, and YouTube and whatever. Right. Maybe you build some Web3 technology that allows people to get paid fractions of a Bitcoin mm-hmm. whenever their work is displayed, right? That This is the big promise. But none of that seems to be getting built either by any of these platforms. Well, it is. This is a little bit slower, but in the world of Ethereum, there is a a standard, a token standard. I think it's 1155. There are three, four, maybe five now, I haven't looked in the last few months, platforms that use instead of ERC-721, which is like one of the original non-fungible token standards, piece of code and smart contracts. I don't know how wonky you want to get with that. But wonky is wonky is wonky. <laughs> okay. the, show is, right. the show is deep in the weeds. Cool, cool. So, you know, taking these token standards and you have these lines of code, and as long as you use these, you can build on top of them, but that core will create either an ERC-721, it's like the first main non-fungible token standard, but 1155 is creating the minting ability that you are referring to, to not just participate in downstream revenues on the same platform, but across platforms. So if I sold something on Rarible or Super Rare, and then the next buyer takes it and sells it on some other platform, as long as that other platform also recognizes the 1155 standard, the person will continue to get paid. The problem is, if someone can only be paid as long as it is sold on the same platform that it was minted on. The real game changer is your ability to go cross-platform and be able to buy, sell, trade these NFTs. But that is happening. It is operable on a few sites. And the more minting platforms that recognize this additional standard will allow these micropayments that you're mentioning on the NFT side. And I think that's a really powerful thing for creatives. And I also think we'll start to see some movement because 
there are more and more creatives who are not just consumers now. That was kind of the point of Web 2.0. And there are even larger markets at this point in time to be able to sell damn near anything, evidently, if you attach <laughs> it to an NFT. That's a whole other show that we could do. Like, what are we attaching the NFT technology to? I think that uh, at some point we'll get past, not past, but in addition to the creative and collectible, which is the sensational right now, we'll see just average uses and not just average, but also extraordinary uses to represent credentialing and identity. So the fact that, you know, I've been out of uh, school for a few minutes. If I had to go back to my high school, shout out to Friend Central in Philadelphia. If I had to go back to my high school to get my diploma, you know, it can cost money and time and who has time for that. But if it could be represented with NFT technology, that could be really cool. We're not exactly there yet, but those are things on the horizon. But getting back to your original point about the consumer as creative, once people are like, you know what, I actually want to make money off of what I've created, they're actually going to start caring. People don't care until they care. And if they're consuming without the requisite uh, connection as a creative, they're just not going to get it. They're not going to get it because they want to use it and they don't want to pay for it. This is the, like the whole thing. But when people have something that they're selling that they don't want to be ripped off, that's when you start getting people's attention about what copyright actually protects, what it means and how they can leverage it. I, I think I'm, I wouldn't say pessimistic. I'm more skeptical about that, right? Like we live in a world where everyone already who participates in the internet is a creator in some way. Right. People are tweeting. They are posting to Facebook. They are. But not TikToks. for value. Not for right. They're value. not doing it for money. Mm. But they also like I don't, I, this is way off in the in the in the space now. But let's go. <laughs> the controversy around TikTok dances. Right. Like who mm. gets paid when a TikTok dance gets famous and then Epic Games turn it into a Fortnite emote. Mm -hmm. Right. That was a large group of Internet users saying, hey somehow this video game has turned this cultural moment, mm -hmm. which everyone had for free into value, into real money. And somehow that should get passed back down to us. And then there was a flurry of cases. Uh, Alfonso Ribeiro is the actor who played uh, Carlton on Fresh Prince of <laughs> yep. Bel-Air. He had that famous dance. Mm -hmm. He tried to sue Epic Games for copying that famous Fresh Prince dance. And that to me was like, no, the goal is not to maximize copyright law and turn every little thing you do in the world into a potential infringement. Mm -hmm. It's to somehow share the value of these shared cultural moments and have more of them. Like, that's what you actually want. You want like a richer cultural life. You're coming from that copy left or every, everything wants to be free. That's me. I love it. That's always been me. I love it. But like, I don't see the balance there. And I certainly don't see any movement to change the actual law. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong. Like what I'm hearing from you is eventually more people will participate in value and our norms will change. Mm -hmm. The way we interact with the law will change because more people will understand what the law means and what their rights are and how they should interact with each other, which again, I'm not pessimistic. I'm just skeptical. Mm -hmm. I'm saying I think the law needs to change. I don't see any movement there that the law is changing to account for what is happening with NFTs and what is happening with the Internet more broadly. Well, why on earth would you think we should change a law that is just from 1976 with a few <laughs> tweaks here and there? What on earth would make you think that we need a new law in 2022 when we have a perfectly good law from 1976? Well, we tweet. <laughs> That's fair. We did the DMCA is from the millennium. So maybe it's only 20 years old, but like, fair. right? 1998, I stand corrected. Right. But even that is like, did not contemplate how the internet would go. Not at all. So what do you think needs to change? Our system is set up to move slowly. Our system of governance, we think of Congress in the best of times, is set up to move slowly. Technology is not. And you know, from the piano roll days all the way to where we are now, technology advances. We don't have a sufficient protections, whatever that means. Because they even, you know, when you think historically of copyright law, it's not for the average person. Originally, it was just for the publishers to make money off of creatives. It has evolved. I'm using air quotes because you all can't see me <laughs> over time. But that was it. Now we have some advances over time. We have the broadening of subject matter. 
But the broadening of subject matter without, to your point, a real cognizable access to the average person to the extent they want to leverage these rights. You have worked with many people who don't, who believe that as long as you perhaps have some type of attribution, some people don't even care about attribution. I think social media feeds into that. So to your point, maybe we're getting further away from that. But the law is what it is, whether it is enforced, how and in what ways it's enforced uh, may change over time. But I'm seeing a groundswell within the creative NFT community, very upset about what's happening to their work and also doing a lot of self-regulation and self-policing. You can put something up in an NFT, you're ripping it off from somebody else. You can mint all of the infringing NFTs that you want once the community finds out and they blast you on hashtag crypto Twitter or hashtag (laughs) NFT art, it's game over. Your token is meaningless and it's worth nothing. And they put the kibosh on it well before anybody could go to small claims copyright court. Is that a thing yet? I don't even, I haven't been keeping up. It should be a thing this year, but I don't know. Right? I don't, I don't know that either. <laughs> they said it was coming. This is my point. You know, this is yeah. my point exactly. We were talking about this two years ago. And I honestly, and I teach this every year, don't know the status of the small claims copyright court and who has time. And in order to even sue, people have to first register their copyright people aren't doing that. So they're left to self-regulation within a community, thankfully in the NFT creative space, built on community. That's the way that you see all these PFP projects and they're selling out in 15 minutes. So you have these great one-for-ones and they're being sold. It's a community that supports it. And if somebody is a rogue actor within that community, their token will end up being meaningless. And maybe that's the norm that we will see that is extra legal working outside of the legal regime which may be the best result to avoid overregulation, which also can be problematic in the copyright space. Are there any cases that you're keeping track of that have actually hit the court system? I haven't seen it yet. It's so early. I mean, we're just starting to see the cases on the fungible side where, you know, we have this BlockFi settlement with the SEC for crypto lending. So you see some of those cases and also enforcement actions from a securities perspective. We see like the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission kind of waiting in the wings. This uh, Securities and Exchange Commission is the SEC. And so some enforcement actions there. Far less so in the NFT space, because even though I was writing and, and certainly talking about an NFT technology existed even before I got in in 2017, but really hit last year and this year in particular. And so we're just starting to see with the larger focus on it from the average person, you're gonna have regulators as well, wanting to figure out what's going on in the space. I saw Commissioner Purse, Hester Purse, she's a commissioner known as Crypto Mom on the SEC, (laughs) writing recently that the SEC needed to take a closer look and perhaps give some guidance on NFTs and when, Not if, but when certain NFT projects might also be considered securities, but they just haven't wound their way through enforcement, let alone to hit uh, a federal court just yet. What are the controversies beyond that that you see bubbling up that could turn into meaningful changes in the law? So uh, uh, these uh, projects in particular that are really up against the line of securities, meaning You send somebody a bunch of money and you're trusting them and they're promising you that they're going to give you a turn on your investment, you know, at some future date really starts to come up against SEC rules and and regulations. But there are a lot of projects that are close also to DAOs that are coming together for the purpose of raising money, like the Constitution DAO to try and buy the Constitution and things like that. Coming together to buy something sounds a lot like crowdfunding and that is very different than securities, but sending money based on advertising in the hopes of of return on the profits by someone else's effort is definitely coming up against securities. So the thing that looks like a DAO and a really cool idea to go buy something, does it start to run afoul of SEC rules if it then starts to kind of like fractionalize interest? We have these fractionalized NFT projects. If it currently exists and you want to buy a piece, that's one thing. Let's all buy a piece of the Mona Lisa. But if we're all going to uh, send money to this common enterprise for the purpose of at the future date getting return on the investment, that's something that's going to be problematic. I want to talk about DAOs in a minute, but let me just wrap up the NFT piece. Mm-hmm. 
we had Scott Belsky. He's a chief product officer from Adobe on Decoder. He told us they're going to allow people to prepare NFTs for minting inside of Photoshop. That's something they're rolling out. Cool. You mentioned OpenSea. They're the largest NFT platform. It's actually funny. We had our first fake NFT at The Verge. <laughs> and I went to our lawyers and I was like, what are we going to do? And we're like, oh, man, this is going to be. But they just have a DMCA portal and they filed the request. And <laughs> like, right. Like just very simple. The same as any other social platform. Um, do you think these companies have a greater responsibility to police IP problems, copyright problems than they're doing now? Do you think they're in the right zone? Do you think the appropriate pressure is being placed on them? At a bare minimum, they're going to have to comport with the laws that already exist. And many of them weren't set up to do that. They were like, this is great. We're going to allow you to mint. You're going to free mint and we'll all make money and live happily ever after. And then people started knocking on the door. Oh, but I actually own that. And that became problematic. This is the same arguments that we heard from internet providers and online service providers back in the day that we're just facilitating, we're connecting people to do their own thing <laughs> and we have nothing to do with it except we're making money. That's where secondary liability came from. That's the push from a legislative point of view to at least give them some opportunity to avoid secondary liability if they do certain things. And these minting platforms are no different than that. Now, to your question is what in addition to the standard DMCA notice and takedown, is going to be appropriate. And there is one significant difference for the minting platforms that are storing the files on the interplanetary file system, IPFS. That means that that file will persist. And it's one thing to kind of take it down on the public facing portion, but as long as it exists on IPFS, is it really taken down? I actually don't have an answer to that today, but that is a problem that did not exist where you have centralized file storage, where it's easy to not only take it down from uh, public view, but also the double delete. I, evidently, this goes on behind closed doors. That's not as easy as it was in Web 2 when we're talking Web 3 with decentralized file storage. This is, to me, uh, one of the most complicated things, and I'm glad you brought it up. In almost every other non-blockchain case, if you engage the power of the state in your controversy... The state can take something away, mm. right? You're like, you made an illegal copy of my photo and you've got it hung up on your wall and I sue you. I, I can take it away. It's out of the system and I can destroy it or whatever. If you do a bunch of money laundering and you've got a bunch of money you shouldn't have, the state can go to your bank or whatever and take your money out of the system. Right. You have a controversy in the blockchain. No one can delete anything from the blockchain as far as I'm aware. That feels like it changes the nature of our relationship to not just stuff, but like mm. to society. Have you seen any either legal or philosophical reckoning with that? So with the blockchain, we're talking the time-stamped records of transactions and balances. There are times where in the memo line, you'll see a reference to some other file, but separate and apart from the record of what happened at any given time. In some instances, it won't be as controversial or problematic as we make it out to be in contrast to this decentralized file storage issue, which really takes us back to like BitTorrent. Yeah. You know, same type of thing that the some aspect of it is going to persist over time. But to your point of what if we have an inaccurate record of something that happens, the accuracy is that this was recorded on a particular date and time. But what if it was connected to something that is inaccurate? And how do you deal with that? Or illegal. Or illegal. What do you do about that? But the record of the occurrence of a thing is different than the thing itself. So I don't know if the record of it is as problematic. And in fact, thinking about illegal activity, blockchains, public facing blockchains are terrible places to record. <laughs> <laughs> as you know, with the most recent thing. Yeah. Do you listen to any of the rap songs? Little, uh, I try not to because I like my ears. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want any, the internet to police to know that I was listening. We're going to get Razzle Khan on decoder. That's a curtain. <laughs> it's our producer. It's, hook this up. So, and maybe it's playing in the background and I don't even know right now. <laughs> Shout out to Creighton. I'm, I'm not saying we're not buying those rights. All right. Very good. Very good. Right. It's be problematic to actually reach them right now, unless you have direct yeah. access to jail. Um, <laughs> do you own any NFTs? I can neither confirm nor deny. 
Wow. How'd you decide what to buy? But I do own ENS, my, my ENS domain, because even if I don't use it, I want to make sure nobody else uses it. So I had to buy up everything that remotely resembled <laughs> Tanya Evans. I, just like my domain names. I scooped them all up. As many as I could think of. Tanya Evans, Tanya M. Evans, IP Prof Evans. I had to scoop them all up. That is the most IP lawyer answer. <laughs> I wanted to prevent any infringing use. So I, I purchased everything affirmatively. <laughs> That's great. Last question here. And then I, I do want to, I want to make sure we talk about Dallas. Um, let's say you were just in charge of the American legal system. Excellent. Now I think, I think you'd be a great steward of it. What changes would you make to copyright law right now to account for what we're seeing? Hmm. So there's so much, gosh, that we should have started this question about 30 minutes ago. <laughs> First of all, it had to your point earlier, we, it has to, be relevant to the state of the art and the norms of our exchange of information and now exchange of value. The Copyright Act under which we are operating today could not even have contemplated what we are doing at this level in the creation and the dissemination and the adaptation of literary and creative works and the way that we can do it quickly and easily. It's interesting. There are other countries that have done more to protect user rights. Canada is a great example of actually codifying protections for users under certain circumstances. There may be a way to set up the regime. You think of like the music industry and the compulsory licenses or some caps below which you don't even have to pay anything. Uh, Just making it easier and safer because most people actually want to do the right thing given the right information, but not under a 1976 law that's been tweaked a couple of times when Mickey Mouse got upset. Mm -hmm. All right. So we have to fundamentally protect users while also maintaining the balance of this limited times protection. I also think that copyright persists too long because the duration of copyright is life of the author plus 70 years after the author's death. That is a long time for limited times, which is mentioned in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 of the Constitution. I don't know how you get that genie back into the box, but I think it persists way too long, particularly given the state of the art and how quickly technology moves. See, now you sound like a copyleft person. <laughs> Me? I'm a professor now. But when I was getting the big bucks, I was, I was, I was singing a different tune for those first 10 years. But I believe very strongly in what, in what you do as well. Well, I don't, I don't do anything anymore. I just talk to smarter <laughs> people than me. It's a great, it's a great gig. We need to take one more break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about DAOs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. Let's talk about DAOs. Uh, they are fascinating. We actually did have uh, Jenna Ehrlich from the Constitution DAO on Decoder. Fascinating conversation. It seems like DAOs are really good at what I would call database activity, <laughs> right? You get a DAO together, you're going to move some money around in a database. All the people are going to vote on what happens in the database. That is great. <laughs> My theory is the second a DAO encounters reality, it experiences a fatal event. Mm. Right. The second you try to not do database activity, something bad happens to you. Interesting. Right. And that's the Constitution DAO. Like they were capped in what they could spend. The other guy outbid them. The Spice DAO, which we are uh, writing about right now, Addie Robertson, our senior reporter, is writing about right now. Mm. They bought a book. They didn't realize that that didn't give them the copyright to the underlying tune, which is very funny. Right. Like anytime they kind of interact with reality, something bad happens and they die. And I think part of the reason we don't know what kind of company they are, mm-hmm. right? They're not an LLC. They're not a partnership. They're not an, all the stuff that you would learn about in law school, like right. corporation law, right? Except in Wyoming where there's, this is, I think amazing. They passed a law saying DAOs registered in Wyoming can be LLCs. 
but DAOs recognized in any other state are not allowed to do business in Wyoming, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, that seems very problematic for anybody who wants to do business in Wyoming. What is the right framework for DAOs? Because I don't think general partnership, which for listeners who aren't familiar, that means everybody who buys into the DAO is liable for everything the DAO does. That I don't think that's what people think they're buying into. But that's the default, at least as I understand it, in most states is, well, we don't know what you are. The default is general partnership. Correct. What is the right framework and how do, they, how do we get across it? Well, I love the way that Wyoming has approached this. I mean, they have over 20 laws on the books in some form or fashion, regulating or providing regulatory clarity to folks who want to do business. When folks come together for the purposes of the Dow, they always want the upside. Mm -hmm. They always want the upside. They don't want any of the downside. And I guess they would think that the original organizer of the Dow, whether they actually know his, her or their names or not, is going to take the heat if something goes badly. Yeah. And that is by default, not what would happen. And we'll start to see that play itself out. And your mention of the Constitution Dow is interesting because once they weren't successful in the purchase, then it became the drudgery of how do we get folks their value back? What do we do next? But it happened really fast, like in a week's time. Think of how long most corporate entities have to get up and running and you have all of these agreements, et cetera. So it's again, it's the move fast, break things mentality of entrepreneurial endeavors. I like the way that Wyoming is at least giving a framework that makes sense. And oftentimes we see things percolate at the state level and less than until there's a tipping point that would require a federal response. But you have to have some type of treasury that might be dedicated to something in case something goes wrong, some way to protect against the harms. I don't want regulation of the technology. Protect against the harms. And whatever the potential harms are that we would see with any governing structure that involves more than one person, you're going to have to have some protections for them and for others who interact and do business with them. But that doesn't mean that the technology is flawed, but you want to just regulate or legislate around the potential harms to investors, to consumers, rather than to the technology itself. Sure, we have to identify the harms. But just right now, right, if I form a DAO and I say, we're going to buy a car, I'm not in Wyoming, and then, all right, we've raised the money to buy the car. The DAO can't buy the car. The DAO doesn't exist, right? It has no legal status as a thing that can do things. So then I have to buy the car and everyone in the DAO has to trust me. And then if they vote that I should sell the car or drive the car off the cliff, there's no legal mechanism to actually make me do that thing outside of regular old contract law. Well, what's wrong with regular old contract law? Well, isn't that the whole reason we have DAOs, right? Is to escape the bounds of boring not old me. okay all right <laughs> not I'm me sad. but i'm i'm a rule follower and i'm the wrong person to talk about this with you need a rule breaker all right <laughs> because again you know this gets to the point there would be something illegal about taking people's money and not doing what you had an agreement to do and you know it doesn't have to be written on paper, are people still using paper? I don't know, but sufficiently permanent, using language from the Copyright Act uh, inappropriately in order to say people's uh, understanding of the agreement gets really fuzzy when you're using oral uh, agreements or you come to a common understanding and it's not recorded. But so much is actually recorded when you look at the organizational tools that DAOs tend to use. They're going to use Discord or, or something else in a way that kind of sets in stone at least the uh, communications around what the agreement is. So it would be inaccurate to say that there's no body that, uh, you know, a court, if they came in and try and just unpack everything to say what was the common agreement and where did it go wrong. I'm more concerned about the enforcement of it than the existence of an agreement that might be enforceable as a matter of law. Interesting. I also worry about the jurisdiction as well. So we, uh, so those are the things that concern me more than the existence of a breach of contract. It's like, okay, we have a breach. Now what the hell do we do about it? And I'm more concerned about that uh, jurisdictional issues and enforcement issues than the existence of an enforceable contract, an enforceable agreement, which is contract. I have this vision of... Discord chat logs being shown mm -hmm. yes, to a judge me too. and saying the four corners of the agreement are in this discord. <laughs> I'm going to go with you on that. 
That's wild. I feel like we could do a whole hour on whether that would work. I love uh, it. Sure. Let's say that you can show Discord and you can prove you have a contract because of Discord <laughs> and whatever else you're using for now. They've used tweets too. This has happened. This is this is actually a thing. So this, people have used tweets to represent a contract. Absolutely, absolutely. I got to get off Twitter. The rule is never tweet, and now we know why. <laughs> right, you can't use your phone. Right, no email, and now no tweets. I gotta, I gotta go offline. I'm pulling the internet connection after this conversation's <laughs> over. Okay, but let's say, sure, you can find the contract there. That jurisdiction question is really hard, right? Most contract laws state law. Absolutely. And most of these DAOs are interstate commerce. I, where would you even sue anybody? So uh, it, I wrote a short piece on this and we had to cross this bridge, no pun intended, in a Web2 world as well, where there are all of these cross-border agreements and you had to deal with the enforceability of cross-border agreements. And the short answer is there is an existing structure that supports cross-border contracts. How you overlay that onto this technology is not at all clear, but there is at least a framework. We're not starting from scratch with cross-border agreements because we're kind of already there. This technology just takes it to the next level. What's the framework? So there are a lot of international treaties and conventions to codify how someone in who has identified in one country, as long as you have countries that are signatories to this, that's also problematic if you have something that a country that is not signed up to be a part of a particular treaty or convention. But most of the ones that we would think about are already participating meaningfully and have existing structures for how those cross-border disputes would be settled. And so I can't think of the precise treaties and conventions off the top right now, but if you have show notes or something like that, or I can tweet it out, that's one yeah. thing that I can do as well. But I also have that up on my website at proftanyaevans.com, so a copy of that particular paper. And that starts to unpack the various international treaties and conventions and how we might overlay that onto a blockchain world. That's me. It just gets really complicated, right? I'm a, absolutely. I'm a regular person. I see that Jonah and his friends want to buy the constitution. I think that's great. I'm going to throw some money at this. And like, now I got to go to proftanyevans.com and download a paper about my international treaty framework that might cause liability. Like that does not seem like anyone's going to actually do that. It seems very complicated. It seems like a way new kind of risk for something that seems to normal people like crowdfunding. Like how does that get reconciled? This is the, um, the existential crisis that they may find themselves in where it's kind of down with the man and down with intermediaries until we need an intermediary. And are there intermediaries in a system or do we reimagine the role of intermediaries so they're not just rent seeking and exacting a premium, but adding value? And to the extent that you need an intermediary to do certain things to navigate when things go badly, because I think the space is great when things go well. There's no reason to talk to me when things go well. It's when <laughs> things go badly. <laughs> and it's not a matter of if, but when, because we are not all altruistic out here, you know, protecting each other and making sure everything goes well. The law and the framework of law is for when things go badly. And when they do, uh, lawyers, we have a ton of lawyer jokes. They're all funny until they're not. They're funny until you need one. And so what are the protections and frameworks that don't hyper or over-regulate the space, but provide the protections for consumers and investors in a meaningful way that allows the innovation to continue while it doesn't harm people in the process, which was my earlier point. So you said you're a rule follower, so maybe this is <laughs> kind of like a layup question for you, but I think it is also philosophically very interesting. Mm. There is an underlying sense to all of this stuff, NFTs, DAOs, smart contracts, the whole thing, mm. that the reason they work and they work better than the legal system or contract law or whatever is because the law itself is code. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not actually a legal system. It's just code and anybody can see the code and you can audit it. And maybe someone will build a front end to audit it for you in a more user friendly way. And the code is law. Mm -hmm. I don't think the United States government is going to just like take a step back and be like, yep, the code is law. Right. Like <laughs> we still have laws and you can make code do illegal things mm -hmm. fairly easily. I think as we've seen over and over again, mm -hmm. does that tension ever get resolved? Um, the way that I approach this question is that the technology was not developed in a vacuum. It is developed 
in a construct that we all buy into of these laws. Not everybody buys into it and some people are completely off the grid and awesome, be completely off the grid. But the moment that you need police or fire or you stop at a stop sign, you are complying with laws. Regulation is all around us in so many different ways, both at the state, local, and then, of course, at the federal level. And so the fact that technology doesn't exist in a vacuum means it has to comport with the laws that we've all agreed to abide by. And if we don't want to do that, then you change the laws. But when you have more than one or two or three people in a society, this is the way that we all interact and coexist relatively peacefully without killing each other in the process or harming each other in the process, uh, intentionally or unintentionally. And so it's going to have to comport with the laws. And as it continues to develop and comes at uh, tension with existing laws, the question is, do we tweak and amend Is there some hybrid? Do we do a complete sui generis law? It's something completely new. And I think that we are at a time in technology where we are going to need some new laws for a new day because the future is now. All right. Well, that is as good a place to end it as I can imagine. The future is now. Tanya Evans, thank you so much for coming on Dakota. This is great. I appreciate you. Look forward to the next time. Thank you again to Tanya Evans for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can tweet at me directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll tell you a secret. If you tweet at me about the show, I'll probably retweet you. And if you really like the show, give us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.